My name is Jamie Piles. I joined Samaritan in December of 1996. We were homeschooling our kids and we were already thinking outside the world's box, if you will. And I saw a little tiny classified ad about this new kind of idea I'd never heard of before. My first reaction was, that's the kind of thing that we would do, isn't it? And so I finally called the number, talked to them, and the more I asked them questions, the more I liked their answers. Um, I, I'm Jay Bhattacharya. I'm a professor in the medical school at Stanford University. Uh, and I've been a professor for 20, what, now two years now. Um, I have an MD and a PhD in, in economics. I, I wasted my 20s uh, studying too hard. Um, uh, and uh, before the pandemic, I was involved in uh, deeply with my research and with teaching my students. I'd never written an op-ed. I'd never been on TV. Uh, I'm, I'm, I still am deeply uncomfortable talking about politics. I think, actually, I very firmly believe for people in public health, we need to be able to reach everybody, no matter what your politics, because public health is for everybody. It's not like politics where if you win 50 plus one, you've won. In public health, you've got to reach basically 100. Otherwise, you're a failure. Um, and what I want to recount today is I want to recount what happened during the pandemic. Because God has blessed me with a front row seat for many of the most important pandemic decisions. And the, the, the reason I want to do that, the reason I think it's important to remember this story, to tell this story, is that the mistakes that, that public health made during the pandemic, catastrophic mistakes that harmed, I think, millions of people, will happen again unless we remember this history and act on it. Uh, okay, so... That's the that's the that's the uh, that's the the the, uh, the introduction. Um, let me let me start uh, let me start in way back in time, 2001. You remember the, the anthrax scare in 2001. Uh, the, the 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 problem that that posed for the U.S. government was that we had no way really to manage a bioterrorist event a hundred times worse than that. The Bush administration responded to that event by building an infrastructure for what to do in, in case of a bioterror event. Now, uh, if you, if, if in 1968, anyone was alive in 1968? You guys remember? I was, I was zero years old. Um, there, was a, there, was a, there was a major pandemic in the United States, the, a flu pandemic. That, that killed a million people around the world and 100,000 people in the United States. 1968, um, if you talk to your parents, if you don't remember, or if you, if you were around, you'll, you'll remember that there were no lockdowns in 1968 in response to that. In fact, uh, there was a major music festival in Woodstock. Anyone, anyone ever go to that? <laughs> in the middle of a pandemic. The, the pandemic plan that we had followed for a century before that 2001 um, event was essentially focused protection of vulnerable people. We identified who were the most vulnerable. In that case, in that pandemic, it was the elderly because that flu strain really killed elderly people. And then we developed resources to try to, try to protect that population. So for instance, expanding hospital capacity to manage the care of patients. 
Um, back then, there weren't so many antivirals around, but if, the, if there had been, that became part of the plan. Better antivirals, better vaccines, but the, that, that was one part, focus protection. The other part of the plan was don't disrupt society. When's the first time you were really scared about a pandemic, about a, a pathogen? Right? In the West, we'd conquered in the fear of infectious diseases. HIV probably is, the last, is probably the last one. Um, it, and it was, a, it, was a, it was a bolt out of the blue. But for most of my uh, life in the United States, I don't remember ever being scared about a, a disease. I, my, I was born in India. My, my grandfather died of tuberculosis. The threat of infectious disease in poor countries is ever present. The number one killer of children, I think maybe now it's number two in the world, of children worldwide is diarrhea from infectious disease. But in the United States, we felt like we conquered it, in part because of our pandemic management strategy. Don't panic the population because disruption of the population creates harms to the health of the population in ways that you can't even predict. At the same time, you have to acknowledge that infectious diseases can harm people. And so you have to use what strategies you have to, to protect them. That was the old strategy, and it worked for a century. Right, the 1968 pandemic, the 1957 pandemic, 1976, a century of respiratory virus pandemics, we managed with this pandemic plan. In 2001, the anthrax scare happens, and there's this debate inside the Bush administration about how best to manage a bioterror event. That, that develops onward, and people start having this idea that, well, we don't just have to manage a bioterror event this way. Maybe we can, maybe we can do better with pandemics generally. In 2003, the SARS epidemic happens. The World Health Organization puts out an estimate that says that uh, the, 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 the fatality rate from SARS, that SARS-1, is something like 10%. One in 10 die, the infected. And it arrives in China. Um, there's, a, there's an outbreak in Toronto. There's a few cases in the US, but then just dies out. And people view it as a near miss. Right, uh, and we, the, the, we develop federal plans about what to do better in the next pandemic. And those federal plans start to talk about lockdowns. It starts to say, maybe we should close schools. People start developing these models of how, you know, basically like these little Sim City games where people interact, and if I make people stay away from each other, well, then they don't spread disease to each other, right? Um, lockdowns enter the vocabulary of public health. There's a big debate in 2006. Don Henderson, Donald Henderson, the man who conquered smallpox, that, that helped eradicate smallpox in the world, he pushes back. He's the most important epidemiologist of the 20th century. He, he writes a paper that says, look, if you have lockdowns, society will be disrupted. And if society is disrupted, you'll end up with a panicked population, you'll make bad decisions, and you'll end up with worse health than if you didn't do the lockdowns in the first place. That advice is rejected. And we, we have in place a nascent idea that we can use this idea of social distancing. What, well, what is this idea? The idea is that we have to treat each other as biohazards. If we can get the entire population to look at other people as biohazards, then they won't interact and they won't spread disease to each other. Anyone have this? This, maybe this just happened in California. This happened to me all the time. I would walk down the street, 
uh, and there's somebody mass coming down the street in the other direction, and when they would see me, they would jump off the sidewalk. <laughs> Anyone have that? Ever feel like a biohazard during the pandemic? That was by design. 2009, President Obama's elected. And you guys remember all kinds of, 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 of things, I'm sure, about that. But for me, the, the most important thing that happened that year was, you can probably guess I'm a medical school, school professor, was, was, was the swine flu pandemic. Remember that? Um, the World Health Organization came out in 2009 with, a rec with, a, with an estimate that the infection fatality rate from the swine flu was something like three, four, five, six, seven percent. That's, you know, one in 20 people that gets swine flu would die. That was the original estimate. People panicked. Um, there was all kinds of pressure on the Obama administration to implement this pandemic plan that the Bush administration had started to develop around lockdowns. At the same time that was happening, there were studies happening that would measure the antibodies in the population from the swine flu. And what they found was remarkable, right? So for every case that had been identified, almost 100 or 200 other people had antibodies. Cases are things where like the doctors see them and you say, okay, this person's really sick. But there were 200 people that were walking around that had never come to the attention of doctors that had antibody that suggested they'd been infected and gotten better. So the infection fatality rate from the swine flu turned out to be something like one in 10,000, 0.01%, not one in 20. You wonder why the swine flu disappeared? Why did, well, it didn't exactly disappear. What happened was people, people in the government said, oh my gosh, it's only one in 10,000. We don't need these lockdown plans. President Obama basically said no. And so we didn't have the lockdown crisis that we had in 2020. Okay. so. Fast forward a few years, um, you have this, you have this, um, you ha actually I'm gonna go back a, a couple of years before, before I go fast forward to 2020, because there's one other piece of the puzzle you need to know. How do you stop a pandemic? Have you thought about that? How do, you, how, do you, how do you make sure that the pandemic doesn't even, it'd be best if these pandemics just didn't happen in the first place, right? But you can't wish it. How do you do that? This, uh, the idea that you could stop a pandemic actually arose again in the Bush administration. The idea was that, well, why don't we send scientists out? Now, in 2003, there was the SARS, SARS epidemic. It started in bats. Well, why don't we send scientists out to bat caves? Wherever the bat caves are, mainly in China, in China I think we, we, we sent them, but like, basically, and sample animals, wild animals everywhere for pathogens. If we can find a pathogen that's likely to make the jump to humans, well then we can develop vaccines before that. We can develop antivirals before that. We can prepare for that pathogen before it becomes a pandemic. That idea occurs to scientists in 2004, five, six. And the technologies to, to actually start to do that are, are have, have, have arrived, genomic technologies. And so we, what we do is the United States government funds research 
to bring the pathogens that are in the animal populations of the world into labs, including labs in the United States, in labs in China, often funded by the United States. A huge infrastructure is built to try to predict which pathogen is going to make the leap. The, now, it's, it's hard just to look at a virus and say, oh yeah, might it infect humans? One thing you can do is you can say, you can, look, you can take the virus you got from the bat, bat cave, put it in a petri dish with human cells, and see if it actually infects the humans. Most viruses that infect other animals won't infect humans. Won't, it's very difficult to get human-to-human -human spread or animal-to-human spread. But sometimes viruses mutate. And if they mutate enough, maybe they could mutate and infect human cells. The, the idea of gain of function is born out of that. The gain of function idea had at its root something that you know, I think we probably all want. We want pathogens to not, not, not infect us. So, so what you do is you take the virus you got out of the bat cave, you mutate it through various mechanisms, and then see how many mutations it takes before it can infect human cells in a petri dish. This is the research that's going on in 2008, 2009, 2010. In 2012, there's a breakthrough. And H5N1, this is the virus that causes the avian flu, which is, it doesn't really make the leap to humans very well, but it's a pretty deadly. 10% maybe mortality, higher. Um, and you have, uh, you have a scientific team, in part supported by the American government, 2012, that discovers that there's only a few mutations you need, and you can make H5N1 transmissible to humans, and, and probably also between humans. A very deadly flu virus. Okay, 2000. What do you do? You have now a deadly a pathogen that you can make really deadly. Mainly, just infects birds and you know maybe chicken farmers that are in contact with birds. But now you've you've essentially weaponized it. What the scientific team that found this discovery did is they published it in a scientific journal, essentially creating a blueprint for anyone to, to replicate their study. That's normal science, right? But this is like publishing how do you build an atomic bomb. And so there's a, an enormous uproar within the scientific community itself. Scientists are worried that if this kind of research is done, the public will think, gosh, we are, the, the, the scientists are mad scientists uh, out to destroy the world. And all we're trying to do is protect you from pathogens, right? Um, and so there's a pause placed on this gain-of-function work in 2014 by the U.S. National Institute of Health. Now, Tony Fauci was the head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease at the time. And you can go read his writings at the time where he supports gain-of-function work. He's a major champion of it. When the pause happens in 2014, gain-of-function pause, Whenever there's a proposal by a scientist to say they're going to do this, Tony Fauci and Francis Collins, the head of the National Institute of Health, also a very famous, famously a Christian, says, uh, can, can sign, sign off and say, well, this is worth the risk. It's worth the risk to do this research. And they support research on coronaviruses, including, potent, uh, including some research that, uh, that 
that may actually have been sort of the, 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 the beginnings of this pandemic. There's still a lot of scientific controversy around that. In 2017, President Trump is elected and through various mechanisms that I, I've talked to some of the folks inside the White House, inside the Trump White House, and they don't remember this when the, during the chaos of the transition, that gain of function pause is released. And now the NIH can full speed ahead start doing gain of function work. There's a proposal plate put to, to DARPA, which is a federal defense agency, to do the kind of gain of function work on this specific virus, or potentially something very similar to this specific virus that's rejected by DARPA, but it has in it the biochemical signatures of this virus in the proposal in 2019. So, uh, you're getting the picture, right? There's still a lot of controversy among the scientists whether this actually was a lab, lab accident, because I, I think that's, that's, to me, is probably the most likely thing. And, but there are scientists who say it might have emerged out of an animal that jumped to humans. The key thing, I think, about that is that all of that research was incredibly dangerous. You go to a bat cave, you pull a, a virus out of the bat cave that would never have seen anywhere a human, anywhere near it, or certainly not a human that could walk around a major city, and you bring it to a lab in a major city like Wuhan, and you do research on it in, in a relatively low security environment. Even if you don't do gain of function, that is a tremendously dangerous experiment. Okay, that's the, that's, uh, the, 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 the background for, I think, how we started this, potentially how we started this. In 2020, in, 20, in late 2019, December 2019, the first reports start coming out of, out of China that there are a severe SARS-like illness, right? So you're, 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 you have these people that are dying from pneumonia that shouldn't be dying from pneumonia. They don't have the flu. None of the flu tests are turning positive. It's some new thing. And it it's very quickly becomes clear that it's a coronavirus. Within the first week of January, there's a vaccine target. We know the sequence of the virus by early January 2020. Um, we know, it turns out, quite a bit about the virus, even though it was a novel virus. In early, and that's how, by the way, the vaccines got to, got, to, got to be in place so quickly. In January 2020, China does a remarkable thing, never, in, never before in human history, they locked down an enormous province of tens of millions of people. You can't leave your house. The doors are barred to the apartment buildings so that if there's one positive case, you can't go out. Um, later in a later lockdown, you'll get cases where the doors are locked to an apartment building. The apartment building's upset because there's one case found inside of it. The apartment building lights on fire and people can't get out because they're, they're locked in. An absolutely draconian lockdown. And the number of cases peaks in, this, in January 2020 and then goes down. The World Health Organization sends a commission to, to China to see what happened. Now, they never set foot in Wuhan, but, but they meet with many Chinese officials. And they come back, and, but the way this delegation included a, 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 a close associate of Tony Fauci, worked at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease. They come back and write a report. And the report says that what China did worked, that the lockdown conquered the disease, that the lockdown conquered the disease. 
Cliff Lane, the aide to Tony Fauci, was on this commission. He comes back and writes an email to an epidemiologist at the World Health Organization saying, what China did worked. I know this because there's a Freedom of Information Act request to find this email. What China did worked, albeit at great cost. We, the, the whole world needs to decide if this is the path we follow. That decision will take more than just the people in this room. From that moment forward, the lockdown was going to happen. We, the world looked at China and concluded that it actually conquered this infectious disease. At the same time, in February, there's, a, there's an outbreak in Italy. Do you remember seeing those pictures in Italy? The coffins lined up in cathedrals, the overwhelmed hospital systems in Italy, which are all like baseline overwhelmed, but you know, that's, that's, one, that's another thing. Um, and uh, the absolute terror in the eyes of the doctors taking care of the patients. The contrast between China and Italy is what led to the lockdowns, that decision to bring in place the plans that had already been in place for closing schools, closing businesses, making sure that, that, that Gabe, Gabe is arrested when he goes and sings hymns, closing churches, uh, all of that is put in place. The idea to scare people so much that they treat their neighbor like a biohazard rather than, uh, than somebody to love. That's all put in place because we copy the Chinese model. Now you can't just lock people in their apartments. That's, we still have some protections. But many countries actually effectively, even democratic countries, do that. Um, so we, we, we copied China for lockdown. Um, well, the, the fear had to then also go up. Do you remember what the earliest estimates of the death rate was from the World Health Organization for this pandemic? 3%. That's what they said. 3.5-4%. That means 3 in 100 that get COVID will die. That was the estimate that was put out by the World Health Organization. When they put that estimate out, they already knew it was wrong. Why, why, would they, why would they say that? Well, if you have a disease where you don't really have a lot of testing, and people come into the hospital, and three out of 100 of those people that you identify in the hospital die, is that the same thing as three out of 100 who get the disease die? No. Remember H1N1, 200 infections for every case. So. Um, here, here I am. I've never uh, written an op-ed before in my life. I'm just a quiet professor. I really liked my life before this. No one no, 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 no recognized me. Um, I, I look at this and I say, you know, I remember what happened in H1N1. People ran these studies of antibodies in the population. And we found out that it was very widespread, this disease, back then. And the fear dissipated because that meant the death rate was lower. I write an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, first time in my entire life. I was so nervous pushing the button to say send. I showed it to my wife, I showed it to my kids, I showed it to my friends, and they said, several of them were like, Jay, don't do this, it's really dangerous, what you're saying. Because by then the lockdowns had arrived and people were scared of the disease. The fear was out there. I said, well, you know, I, I, um, so I, I am a Christian and I had to decide I had to decide what was my career for. I could have had, a, a, I could have kept living my quiet, happy life, but that wasn't the purpose for me for my my job. My job is to help with public health, right? That's what I trained for. So I hit send. The Wall Street Journal publishes the piece. 
And the piece just says, well, we don't know how deadly disease actually is. And we do some calculations based on, remember that cruise ship, the Diamond Princess cruise that floated around? Um, and it turns out that the death rate, if everybody on the cruise ship got it, is like, it could be, it could be actually as low as two out of a thousand, or lower. Um, or it could be really high. There's a lot of uncertainty. We don't really know. And that's the point of the Wall Street Journal piece. The Wall Street Journal piece says we don't know the death rate. Let's run some studies, like we did with H1N1, rapidly, because we've already locked down. My kids aren't going to school. The world looks like it's headed for a path to, uh, to, to, to disaster. We'll talk about what lockdowns actually ended up doing. Um, and uh, I started getting death threats. I started getting... Uh, Notes from my colleagues, people who I have friends with, written papers with, know for, for decades, asking me, Jay, what are you doing? Some of them defriend me on Facebook. I, I thought that was very strange. It's like, okay, that's the, that's the least bad thing that'll ever happen to me. It's okay. <laughs> uh, um, and then something else remarkable happens. People start contacting me, uh, offering me the ability to run the study I'd called to, to run. Uh, a man who works with Major League Baseball testing. He's ordered a whole bunch of antibody kits from China, actually. And he says, I'm gonna be, I was going to use them to sell them to Major League Baseball. But I, and I read your op-ed. I want to help you run a study, run the study you said you want to run. He hands me the, the test kits for free. Um, we have this enormous community of my, like my former students. We get together. And within three weeks, we run a major study in Santa Clara County, California, where I live, in LA County, where, uh, where my, my student is the dean at USC, uh, and actually around the country with Major League Baseball. And what we find is that in California, for every in case that had been found, there were 40 people that had been infected. It's very similar to H1N1, except, not, except it's much more deadly than H1N1. In H1N1, the death rate was one in 10,000. For COVID, it's two in 1,000, 20 times higher. At the same time, we also find this enormous age gradient where the oldest people are at the highest risk. And the youngest people are at very, very low risk. At the time we did the study, not a single person under the age of 20 had died in Santa Clara County. And all of the deaths, almost 80% of the deaths had been above the age of 65. And that's still true today. Something like 80% of the deaths from this disease are people over 65. We published the study. Um, in, a, in, uh, in a preprint, the world again explodes. I, I get accused of taking $5,000 for the study from a JetBlue founder who donated $5,000 to Stanford. I personally have never taken, I've taken $0 for the study because to me this is something I'm doing out of, out of my calling. So I've taken no money for the study. So it's, it's, it's a, it felt like a, you know, like a, it just felt like I was being maligned, slandered, lied about. Um, there are hit pieces on my wife in, the news, in BuzzFeed because of the study. And, we, um, and, and, I, and Stanford does an investigation of, of me because of that piece that says that there's $5,000. Now Stanford, the money from this donor had gone to Stanford. Stanford already knew that I hadn't taken any money, not to me. It was to offset the cost of the study. And um, it felt, again, like a betrayal. I'd been a professor for 20-some years in good standing. Um, I, I, I taught a generation of students. They're all around the world now. 
very successful, some of them very successful. I've had long track record, and I just conducted a study just like any other I'd done, except this was tremendously important because it identified what the real risk of this disease was. The study then is replicated 100 times around the world by other independent teams, and it finds almost exactly the same answer we have. Two in a thousand, three in a thousand, maybe four in a thousand, depending on, the, on, on if the city uh, or the location had old people in it or had young people in it. And yet I'm investigated. I, I, I'm cleared by the Stanford investigation sometime in the summer of 2020. But the, and it's very clear, Stanford sends me this signal that I have a choice. If I just stay silent about my, my unhappiness about the lockdown policies that I was seeing, then they would let me go back to my quiet life, not bug me. If I spoke up, I don't know what would happen. Um, and I, 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 uh, I've gained some of it back, but I lost 30 pounds in anxiety over that, over that, uh, over that summer. Um, uh, I, I, you know, because I didn't know how to protect my family. I was still getting death threats. It was, it was tremendously stressful. Um, and I could see the pressure that my fellow scientists were under to be silent because they could see the pressure on me, on people like me that stuck their head out. I started getting messages from friends in, 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 in Germany and elsewhere of people, of friends who had spoken up and, they, and their universities investigated them. One was actually fired, despite academic freedom. Um, my friend, Scott Atlas, he's, he's, uh, I get to know him uh, pretty well during, the, during this time. Um, at, at, at one point, anyone ever see him on Fox? President Trump saw him on Fox, um, Fox and Friends, and was impressed by him. He and I are sharing papers. It's actually quite an exciting time to be a scientist, because there's a thousands of new papers coming out, right? One after the other after the other. Um, and uh, so he, he, he's seen by Scott, uh, by President Trump, who then brings him in as his, his advisor. Again, we're, I'm like talking to them about new papers that are coming out, new ideas. He calls me every day he's in the White House, and he says, Jay, I can't do this anymore. I'm sharing the papers with Tony Fauci. I'm sharing the paper with Debbie Burks, and they're not interested in the science. They're so convinced that the lockdowns that they have put in place are right that they don't want to listen. A hundred of my colleagues then sign a, pet a petition to censor Scott. The faculty senate at Stanford votes essentially, in effect, to excommunicate him. Although they didn't call it that, because we're, no, we're not a religious institution. Um, and, uh, and, you know, uh, he, what he's telling the president at the time was, if you keep schools closed, children are going to get hurt, which turns out to be 100% true. He was telling the president at the time that we're not doing a good enough job to protect older people, especially in nursing homes. Let's do a better job to protect older people in nursing homes. That's the advice he's giving him, the president of the United States. And 40% of the deaths in the United States to date from COVID or with COVID have been in nursing homes. We did a terrible job protecting older people. Um, and that's all Scott's telling him. But my colleague signed a letter accusing him of do, saying anti-science things because he's skeptical about whether masks work. They don't really work that well in the population. I could just, just as a spoiler, you guys, I mean, you guys, these guys probably already know that, right? Um, um, I mean, because you know, there's a lot of randomized studies from before the pandemic with the flu where the masks don't work. I knew that. Tony Fauci knew that, which is why early in the pandemic he said masks don't work. 
He was, he was telling the truth then. It's later when he said mass work, and then he said he was lying about, about the, the original statement. Well, he was actually lying about lying in that, in that second time, which is, anyways. Um, uh, in October of 2020, my friend Martin Kuldorf, who's a professor at Harvard University, one of the world's best biostatisticians, calls me up and says, Jay, I want to have a little conference. Um, I'm going to invite Sunetra Gupta. She is, I think, the world's best epidemiologist. She works at Oxford University. She's a professor of theoretical epidemiology at Oxford University. I've admired her for a long time. Never met her. And so I jump at the chance. I say, so we go to this little town in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. I never heard of the town before, never been to the town before. I arrive it through like some secret way because you can't like fly in direct. You have to go through Albany, but then you have to like contact and all the contact. Anyways, there's this skullduggery to get Sunetra into the country. Um, she's in the UK, right? Um, and we meet and we realize that we arrived at the same place. The old pandemic plan would work. Protect older people because there's a huge risk to them from dying. Lift the lockdowns because the harms of the lockdown are worse than the disease for young people. We're, we, now, Sinatra's in the UK. It's a right-wing government that imposes the lockdown there. Martin is from Sweden. It's a left-wing government that imposes focused protection, that, that, that puts in place the old pandemic plan, more consistent with freedom. All of us are concerned not just about the United States, but about the entire world. In Uganda, the schools are closed. It turns out the schools will stay closed for two years on the advice of the World Health Organization and people like Tony Fauci. The children of Uganda, four and a half million of them, will never come back to school, dropped out forever. And there's no Zoom school for many of them. There's just no school. It turns out many of those kids, the parents were so impoverished by the supply chain disruptions that they, had, they sold their kids into sexual slavery. So you have these tragedies, which I can multiple, tell you stories of going around all around the world. In the backdrop of that, we wrote the Great Barrington Declaration. The Great Barrington Declaration said, lift the lockdowns. Don't disrupt the lives of children. And importantly, do better with focused protection. It's going to look very different in Idaho than it will look in California. But local public health, rather than thinking about how best to arrest people who are singing hymns in the street, um, should instead figure out how best to protect older people in nursing homes where, where there are people already dying. Um, we wrote the, the Great Barrington Declaration October 4th, 2020. I now learned, I learned this later, a year later, from, again from FOIA documents. On October 8, 2020, Francis Collins, the head of the National Institute of Health, writes an email to Tony Fauci calling me, Sinetra Gupta, and Martin Kuldor fringe epidemiologists. Fringe epidemiologists. I have somewhere a card that maybe I can share with you. It says fringe epidemiology on it. It's now my, my favorite title. Um, um, fringe epidemiologists. And then he says that there needs to be a devastating takedown. Again, I start getting death threats. The New York Times calls me up and asks me why I want to let the virus rip through the population. Well, I don't want to let the virus rip through the population. I want to protect older people. That's why we have this idea of focused protection. There's a massive propaganda campaign, in effect, orchestrated by 
the head of the, the most important scientific agency in the world, the National Institute of Health, funded by the US government. And um, it works. Now, first of all, the Great Barrington Declaration, tens of thousands of, do of doctors and scientists signed on. Almost a million people signed on. Did some of you sign on? Oh, God bless you all that did. You guys can still sign on, by the way. Just go to the website. Um, it, 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 uh, we wrote the declaration. At, at, when we first wrote it, I thought that we were a, a substantial minority of scientists disagreed with the lockdown policies. I thought we were a minority, but a substantial one, and I thought we had the better argument. When the, the, the declaration went viral, Nobel Prize winner signed on, all kinds of people signed on, I realized that you know the minority of scientists that were against the lockdown was probably not a minority. In fact, we probably were in the majority. Why did Francis Collins write an email calling me a fringe epidemiologist and calling for a devastating takedown? It's because he and Tony Fauci wanted to create an illusion of scientific consensus that did not exist about the lockdown. They wanted to, to put a lie in front of the population so that, because if you're going to lock down the world, you better have a pretty solid group uh, unanimity of scientists before you do something so severe as a lockdown. And, the, and what the Great Barrington Declaration did is it exposed the fact that there was a debate among scientists about what the right thing to do was. But the public at large didn't hear that. The public at large heard that there was a group of, of scientists who wanted to, to have everyone infected for political reasons, right-wing political reasons. Even though Sunetra Gupta is a labor voter, a left-wing voter in, 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 in the UK. And as I said, uh, uh, the, the Swedish government, this left-wing Swedish government, is the one in favor of lo against lockdowns. Um, OK, so, um, but you know, I was really, I knew those death threats were going to come then. But I was very happy, actually, because finally the message was finally getting out. I felt like, it felt, people have come up to me and told me that, that when they read it, they felt like they weren't insane anymore. Anyone have that sense during the pandemic? Like, you're, am I crazy? Things, weird things are going on? You weren't crazy, right? The old pandemic plan was the right plan. Um, in September of 2020, just a month before the, pen, uh, the Great Barrington Declaration, I get a phone call from, uh, it, was, it was a Sunday, it was right after church, and uh, it, it's, I look and say, it says Florida on it. And I said, hmm, I don't know anybody in Florida. I wonder what's going on. So I, but, but you know, like people have been calling me all through the pandemic out of the blue, some important people. So I said, take, take your call. I said, the governor would love to speak with you. I'm like, which governor? He says, oh, the governor of Florida. I'm like, I had to look up quickly on Google who the governor of Florida was. <laughs> it's Ron DeSantis. And for two hours, we talk about papers. For two hours, he's, he, I'm telling him about papers I've written, other papers I've read that I think are important. He's telling me about papers he thinks is important, scientific papers, where he's looked at the footnotes. The, the politician that looked at the footnotes, I don't think I've ever heard of that before. Um, I was really impressed. And then he said, OK, can you come to a, a, a policy roundtable next week? I'm like, OK, I, I'll, okay, I'll fly across country if I have to. No, no, he's just a Zoom thing. And you can go see the policy roundtable. You, you can look. I'd not had much speaking experience at that point. I looked really nervous. But we lead, he leads us through, me, Martin Kulldorff, and Mar Michael Levitt, who's a Nobel Prize winner from Stanford, a whole series of questions about what the right strategy is. Are lockdowns the right idea? What harms are there from closing schools to our kids? Um, and so on. And 
The next day, he announces all of the remaining restrictions on Florida are going to be lifted. The kids in Florida go to school that summer, or that, that, that fall, whereas my children at, in California do not see the inside of a classroom for a full year and a half. Um, he lifts the lockdowns, and immediately the press seeks to destroy him. When the governor of, of Georgia lifted the lockdowns, what the, what, uh, the, the Kemp, um, the, 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 there was a story that's, that was titled An Experiment in Human Sacrifice. An absolutely sick inversion of the reality, which is that the lockdowns themselves were an experiment in human sacrifice, with millions of people around the world thrust into dire poverty as a consequence of the, of the economic disruptions caused by the lockdowns. You remember the debate about, well, should we save our economy or save lives? That was a lie. It was always lies versus lives. You suppress an economy, and poor countries around the world that depend on a well-functioning American market, some guy who's selling coconuts on the street of Mumbai loses his work because of that lockdown, because there's no demand, and then his kids go starve. The UN is putting out reports saying that 130 million people will starve as a consequence of the economic dislocation of the lockdowns. It was always lives versus lives. Um, and when, so when Governor DeSantis lifted the lockdown, I thought, this is a tremendously important moment. Uh, it was a tremendously important moment because of the attention that it got. Uh, so finally, the United States had its Sweden. I'll tell you the, the uh, and I'll wrap up very shortly, because, but, I, but, I, but I want to tell you the result of this. Um, if you compare all-cause excess deaths in California through, the, through last week, from the beginning of the pandemic to last week, all-cause excess deaths in California versus Florida, which state do you think has higher all-cause excess deaths? Florida locked down, uh, Florida opened up, California locked down. California has all higher all-cause excess deaths. Why? Because young people died from drug overdoses, from suicidality, from, from, uh, from uh, essentially all the things that young people shouldn't die from because the lockdowns produced these, these delayed cancer screening, produced these bad outcomes that are just as bad for health, if not worse, as COVID, especially for young people. Um, there's one more piece, and I promise I'll, 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 I'll be quiet. Um, it, the, the, uh, the, the question is, what happened to the scientists? Why didn't they speak up? I've already told you one reason, but let me, let me uh, go a little bit further into that reason. Um, the head of the National Institute of Health, he controls $45 billion of funding. It's a lot of money. But it's not actually money he controls. What he controls is the careers of scientists. I have a, 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 a tenured job at Stanford in the medical school. I don't get that job unless I'm able to win money from the National Institute of Health. It's one of the like, rites of passage. When the National Institute of Health, the head of the National Institute of Health, says, I don't like this guy, and I don't like his position. He's sending a signal to other scientists to stay silent. He abused his power in order to get the illusion of consensus behind the lockdown that didn't actually exist. When Tony Fauci said to the, to the country that uh, if you criticize me, you are not simply questioning a man, you are criticizing science itself. You remember that? 
Imagine saying that. Imagine the hubris of somebody to say that. Um, that was a reason why scientists stayed silent, for fear of their own careers. Another reason is that the government of the United States violated the First Amendment rights of Americans at scale. So I'm involved with a case uh, brought by the Missouri and Louisiana Attorney General's Office against the Biden administration. It's called Missouri versus Biden. And uh, we found from discovery in this case, we've got to read the emails of a dozen federal agencies. We got to depose Tony Fauci and, and, and many, many people within the government. It turns out that, that the United States government deploys a vast censorship industrial complex. It uses its power to bully social media companies to suppress speech that it doesn't like. And during the pandemic, that included true facts that the government found inconvenient, right? So for instance, here's a scientific fact. If you've had COVID and recovered, you have pretty substantial immunity. You might get COVID again, but it's likely that the next time you get it, it'll be milder than the first. That was known actually in July 2020. You couldn't say that on social media until Elon bought Twitter. Why does it take a billionaire to buy Twitter for Americans to have First Amendment rights? We're even should be allowed to say false things on Twitter, I would think. Science depends on the ability for people to say false things. It's how we check each other. If I say something false, my fellow scientists will correct me. Uh, Gabriel and I had a nice argument with each other about 500 interesting things, and now we're like, we're like, we, 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 we're, we're like buddies as a result of these arguments. Um, and it's, it's, one of the, it's one of these things where like, if you think that you are the science, you think it's okay to suppress false speech because you are so certain you're right. That kind of idea, well, you better be right because if you're wrong, tremendous damage happens. If the government had not had this vast censorship campaign, we would have won this debate about the lockdowns in October 2020 a tremendous amount of damage to American children, to American young people, and, and would have been avoided. And we would have done a better job against COVID. And 100 million people around the world would not be in poverty. The consequences of the censorship industrial complex are not simply in terms, are, can't be just, it's not, you're not measured just in terms of rights violated, although those are quite important. The consequences are in, in human life itself. Our lives depend on us being able to make, to, to argue with each other freely and openly, to correct each other, even in social media, even when public health, even when the science itself disagrees. The US First Amendment is, uh, is very likely the most important public health measure that we have in this country. Okay, um, what happens next? I'm, I'm sorry to end this on, on a negative note, but I have to tell you the truth, right? So I'll, I'll, just, I'll just tell you. The people that designed the strategy for the pandemic, the lockdowns, the, including at the World Health Organization, internationally and nationally, are giving themselves awards. 
They're giving commencement speeches. The idea of lockdown is now the standard pandemic plan. The next time there's a pandemic, and by the way, we still fund the com company, the, 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 the organization that did a lot of that gain of function work, we still, the US federal government still funds it, just won a new grant. Um, the next time there's a pandemic, we will have lockdowns. Schools will close and we will do the same thing again. The government will deploy its censorship industrial complex and unless there's a sustained popular movement against the, the lockdowns, against this pandemic strategy, this will happen again. Um, I'm sorry to leave with your depressing end note, but I have to say, I think, um, I think we can fix it, but it, it's gonna take keeping our eyes on the ball, T telling our elected leaders that what happened was a mistake, even if they themselves made the mistake, Republican or Democrat, that it's vital that this not happen ever again, that we have in place protections not just for people, free speech rights, but that public health itself has checks and balances that we expect every part of our government to have, and not the unfettered access to power that it had during the pandemic. Thank you so much. I hope my son is gay. And I hope that Jesus forgives him just like he does the rest of us. <laughs> Doug Wilson, Moscow minister and columnist with the Idahonian Daily News. The question that confronts us is what does it mean in a disobedient culture to be prophetic? There be a place for same-sex couples? Uh, no, no marriage. Even though it's the law of the land in the United States? Uh, just like Roe used to be. We want to turn the world upside down. And you don't turn the world upside down by being nice. I believe that we are in, in this polytheistic, pluralistic moment, and the desperate need of the hour is for our Christian leadership to say, Jesus is Lord and there is no other. Fear no man.